All right, well, last week, as we continued with our study of the Gospel of Luke, we looked together at the triumphal entry of Jesus, which, if you missed it, is this amazing story of Jesus' entry into the city of Jerusalem, and he has come to Jerusalem for the last time. And it's his last trip to Jerusalem because within the context of about a week chronologically, he will be crucified, and he will be crucified by, of all people, the religious establishment of the Jews. The religious leaders of Israel will take the Son of God himself, and they will put him to death, which raises the question of why in the world would those guys do that? And there are a lot of reasons for this. Deep theological reasons lie behind and beneath and around and under and all in and through all of this. I mean, God the Father is going to take the great wickedness of these men, and it is the greatest act of wickedness to put the Son of God to death, and He will then turn around and use it as the greatest act of redemption and wonder and love and good by taking the willing sacrifice of the infinitely righteous, infinitely valuable Son of the living God. He lays his life down willingly and then using it as the very basis by which to give freely forgiveness and eternal life to all of those who come to him and say, you know what, I'm a sinner in need of this forgiveness and desiring this eternal life, and I claim that willing sacrifice as the full payment for all of my sin, past, present, and future. Deep theological reasons, but... From the perspective of the evildoers themselves, the religious leaders of Israel with whom Jesus is contending today, okay, the reason they did it is because unlike the disciples of Jesus, who as we saw last week, received Jesus up into the city of Jerusalem as their king, and king is the operative word, these guys received Jesus up into the city of Jerusalem as a threat to their kingdoms. You see the difference? He came and they recognized he's a threat to our power. He's a threat to our status. He's a threat to our plans and dreams and ambitions and bank accounts and livelihoods. And well, I mean, if you sum it up, everything else, Jesus Christ is a threat. And I want you to consider that this this morning because it's a very, very important thought. Rightly understood, Jesus Christ is not just a threat to them and to their power and to their status and to their plans and dreams and ambitions and bank accounts and livelihoods and everything else but he's also a threat to me and to all of that for me and all of that for you. He's a threat. And one of the many things I love about the Lord is he doesn't hide that. He's not shy about it at all. There's no surprises with Jesus, really, authentically. Like, he comes to us, and he doesn't sort of woo us into a relationship with him, you know, and then after we've signed on the bottom line, he then whips out all of the fine print and says, now what you've really done is, it's not the deal. He comes and says, listen, if you're considering me, Let me tell you who I am. I am a Savior. Yeah, in fact, I'm the Savior. But I'm also a king. And in receiving me up into your heart, if you will, you don't get one or the other, you get both. And it's a good thing that you get both because you need a Savior who can authentically present you spotlessly, perfectly before Father God. And you need a king who can bring a wisdom from another world because the wisdom of this world doesn't work. And by which, through His Spirit, He empowers even your obedience. You can learn to live a life that in the end, and our lives are always and everywhere measured by Jesus. And let's be honest, even by ourselves in terms of how they end and what they bring in the end, meaning for all of eternity. Okay, by this wisdom from another world and by the power of my spirit, you can learn to live a life that actually, in the end, matters. That's Jesus. And I think that's another thought that we need to keep in mind. 
I feel like every time we have this conversation of Jesus isn't just Savior, but he's also king, and that costs us everything, we immediately go to the cost. You know, we immediately start thinking, well, wait a minute. So what you're saying is that if I, if I have Jesus and, and he's my Savior, but he's also my king, right? By his spirit, I'm learning to die to myself, as we'll talk about it in a minute, and live unto him. And so I'm going to lose my power over my life, my authority. And that's what makes a king, is it not? Yeah, you're going to lose your power. But you're going to gain real power. Don't just focus on the loss. You're like, wait a minute, so I'm going to lose my status? Like maybe Christ will come and rearrange my life in such a way that the people around me will think less of me and will not applaud me the way that they presently do. And since that's what I've based my significance on, truth be known, that's where I find my identity, I'll lose my identity as you presently have it, yes. But you'll gain a true identity, an eternal identity. So plans and dreams and ambitions you're saying are on the chopping block right now, Tom, that's exactly what I'm saying. Absolutely. And yet you'll get a better plan. You'll get a better dream. You'll get a better ambition. And here's what will happen if you will follow Christ and learn to die to those things that you might live to his plan and his dreams and his ambitions. A day will come where you'll look back on what you used to value, what you used to desire, what you used to want to do with your life. And you'll think, my goodness, how trivial that would have been. It's amazing. Don't just think about what you're losing. Because what you're losing is swallowed up infinitely in what you gain with Christ as your king. And Jesus says as much. He says it, for example, in Luke 9, verses 23 and 24, very famous verses, verses that we've talked about several times this year, but maybe not for a few months. Again, not hiding it, but being upfront about it. No surprises with the Lord. He comes to us and Luke tells us that Jesus said to who? Because it's important. He said to all, to all include me, all includes you. And here's his statement. It's a statement about discipleship. He says, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would truly seek to be my disciple, well, then here's what it's going to take. And I'll empower it by my spirit, but know this is what you're signing up for. Let him deny himself. And as I said months ago when we looked at this, the Greek language that underlies this makes it clear that what he's speaking of here is a one-time decision, a singular moment in time where either consciously or subconsciously, you and I came to the, part, to the moment where we get, you know what? I'm going to stop playing around with Jesus. I'm going to stop pretending like I'm the king and he's not. I'm going to stop trying to enlist him in my program. Come on, Lord, make my plans happen for me. And I'm going to deny myself of my plans and I'm going to enlist myself in his program, I am going to finally, once and for all, make the call and get off the fence and go all in on Jesus. Jesus says, okay, here's the thing. If anyone would come after me, truly seek to follow me as my disciple, he needs to do that first. And then he needs to take up his cross. It's the language of death daily, every single day, and follow me. For whoever would save or preserve his life as he would define it, as he would construct it, as he would pursue it and live it if he was the king of his own life. Will what? Will lose it when? In the end. And our lives are measured against how they end. Against where they end. Against what they bring for all of eternity. We've got these little blink of an eye lives. It's hard for us to, to see it in those terms. But in light of eternity, that's really and truly what it is. There's a reorienting of the way that we think and look at things that needs to be done here. He'll lose it in the end is the point. However, and here is the statement that should fire you up, that should excite you as followers of Christ. 
Whoever loses his life for my sake, whoever makes the call, gets off the fence, goes all in on me, Jesus is saying, and then gets up every day and reaffirms that decision by dying by the power of my spirit in accordance with my word and community with my people to life as he would have defined it, constructed it, pursued it, and lived it if he himself were king of his own life so that he can live the life that I as his king have defined, constructed, and called him to pursue and live. That person will save his life in the end when he dies and enters into eternity. And so then what is Jesus doing with this statement? We've talked about it. He's doing two things. First, he's dividing all of humanity into two categories. Number one, those who reject Jesus as their king and live like they are their own king. And number two, those who accept Jesus as their king. And again, by his spirit and obedience to his word, together with his people, learn to die more and more unto themselves so that they might live more and more for Christ, their king. And then secondly, he's saying, okay, let me tell you how it ends because the ending is that by which all things are measured. If you reject me as your king and spend your life living just for you, then when you die, what do you lose? You lose everything you've lived for for you lose yourself. And that's what you've lived for. But if you accept me as your king, you embrace me and then in love as an expression of a heart that's been captured by me. All right, you learn as I empower you, as I lead you to die more and more into you that you might live more and more into me to embrace the life that I will lead you on, which is the great adventure. It is not loss. It is all together gain in this life as well as in the next. Okay, well, then when you die, what do you lose? You lose nothing, but what do you gain? And for all of eternity gain, you gain absolutely everything that you've lived for, which is essentially what Jesus is going to say today as he stands now in the temple courts contending with the kings, really, in many ways, of those courts, the religious leaders of Israel, who within a week will crucify him because unlike his disciples who received him up into that city and up into those temple courts as their king, received him instead as their threat. And what Jesus will now do is he will measure their lives, and it's primarily a statement to them, but it has implications and lessons for us. He will measure their lives against how they will end. No surprises with the Lord. He's not sneaking up on these guys. He's not hiding who he is or where his authority comes from, from them in the least. He's telling them everything in advance. He will measure their lives and ours inferentially against how they will end and what they will bring for all of eternity. And he will do that by telling them and us a story that holds before them and us the sacred duty, an awesome privilege that is ours to learn to live this life for our King who is Christ. And frankly, that most particularly holds before them and us the peril of refusing to do so. And I say that because this is a judgment parable, so it's good that you're seated today. It's a judgment parable. It's heavy. However, it's a judgment parable that also holds before us the amazing grace of our amazing God and the amazing glory of our amazing King. So look for all of that as we pick up our study today in Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 9, where Luke says this. He says that Jesus, who again is standing now in the temple courts teaching, began to tell the people of Israel a parable that at least most immediately is about the religious leaders of Israel who incidentally are also standing there listening to him teach. 
So imagine their delight. But it also contains lessons for us. And here's the story. He says, a man who, by the way, represents God, the father in the story, planted a vineyard that represents God's people. Now, how do I know that? Because all throughout the Old Testament, the image of God's people again and again and again and again is a vineyard. So what do we have so far? We have God the Father, and He is the owner of the vineyard who is God's people. Now, time out. What is the purpose of a vineyard? The purpose of a vineyard is to produce as much fruit as it possibly can for the owner of the vineyard. Why is that important? Because if you have faith in Jesus, you are part of the vineyard of God. And He's not sneaking up on you with your purpose. He's not hiding it from you. He's not saying, hey, you know what? You have a purpose. See if you can figure it out. No, he's saying there is an owner and he is God and he owns all things. But most particularly, he owns his people and he owns them by reason of creation and he owns them by reason of redemption. He has purchased them with the blood of his son. You do not belong to you anymore. You belong to him. And you're like, oh, that's so intimidating. I'm thinking about all the things I'm going to lose. Now think about what you gain for a minute. It's a good thing. It's an amazing privilege. It's a sacred duty. What is your purpose? Well, simply put, bear as much fruit as you can in this season of time called life. This is the season of fruit production. Be about it. So Jesus says, a man who represents God the Father planted a vineyard that represents God's people, and then notice what he does with his vineyard. He, God the Father, let it out or he leased it out is the idea to tenants who, again, most immediately in this story are the religious leaders of Israel. We'll see that. But don't miss yourself there too. I mean, it seems to me if we're looking for entry points into this story, and that's what we ought to be doing as we read and study stories like this, we can't just go, well, this is a story about them. It doesn't have anything to say to me. No, 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 it does. Our entry points are, A, every single one of us who belong to Jesus, first of all, are part of his vineyard, and therefore we have as our goal in life, production of fruit. But then secondly, there's a sense in which, too, we are tenants of the vineyard, charged with the sacred duty and responsibility, the privilege of cultivating the vineyard of God in this earth beginning in our own hearts, in our own hearts. It speaks to things like personal worship. And I bring that up because it's the fall, man, and it's like a tidal wave of activity, is it not? I mean, not only are your sleep schedules now changing, but so is everything else. How are you doing cultivating Christ in your heart in personal worship? It speaks of corporate worship, GPS, all of that. Cultivate the Lord in you. It's a priority that you might produce fruit. You're cultivators of the vineyard of God beginning with yourself, but then emanating out from you, your husband, your wife, your children, your parents, your siblings, your friends, your school, your office place, this church, this city, the world that we live in. What is our primary purpose? The production of fruit. That's what we're to do. And who else are we? We're tenants. We're those who are here with gifts and talents and resources and abilities called to the sacred duty of cultivating that in the earth. And so then Jesus says, God leased his vineyard out to these tenants, and then he went away to another country for a long while, no doubt with the understanding that these tenants to whom he has leased out his vineyard, which is his people, okay, would cultivate the vineyard of God in such a way as to maximize his profits, because that's the way it worked in these kinds of lease arrangements. 
the tenant would receive an agreed-upon salary, and he was paid at that salary with the understanding that he would then cultivate the vineyard of God in such a way as to maximize the profits for the owner. And the owner got the profits, you see, but that's not the way that it worked out with these guys in Israel. For Jesus then says in verse 10, that when the time came for the owner of the vineyard to receive the profits from the vineyard that he, as the owner of the vineyard, was rightfully due, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But what happened to the servant? Because it's reminiscent of exactly what happened to prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet that you read about in the Old Testament that God sent to the religious leaders of His people. That's who these servants are. The tenants beat Him and sent Him away empty-handed as if the owner had no right to the produce of His own vineyard, as if they owned it. And so then the owner of the vineyard, who is God, sent another servant, gave him a second chance, but then they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And so then the, the owner of the vineyard sent yet another servant, a third one. And this one also they wounded and cast out. And then the owner of the vineyard said to himself, what shall I do? And after taking counsel with himself, here's his conclusion. He said, I will send my beloved son to these tenants, and who is this son? Because he's not hiding his identity, he's being overt with it. It's Jesus. I will send my beloved son to these tenants. And he concludes that thinking, for perhaps these tenants into whose spiritual care I have placed my vineyard, my people, will respect him, but they don't respect him. And they know it, and Jesus knows it, so now watch what Jesus will do. He will tell these guys who are standing there listening to this story in advance what he knows that they plan to do to him. And then he will tell them how it will end for them. It's astonishing. He says, but when the tenants saw the son of the owner of the vineyard, they said to themselves, this is the heir. It's our big chance, you see. Let us kill him. Why? So that the inheritance of the vineyard and all of the benefits of being able to cultivate it entirely for ourselves, as if we owned it, not God, may finally be ours. And so they threw him out of the vineyard, or in Jesus' case, they took him outside of the walls of the city of Jerusalem and killed him on a cross. So what then, Jesus now asks in this judgment parable, will the owner of the vineyard, who is God, do to these wicked tenants who are the religious leaders of Israel? Because it's obvious, isn't it? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others like Peter and James and John and the other apostles of Jesus and to other people as well, not just to the Jewish people, but but to the Gentile people too. And when the religious leaders of Israel, we read now, heard this statement by Jesus, they understood it. They got it. It says later that they determined to kill him because they understood that he told this parable about them. And they said, surely not. But then Jesus looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? And then quoting from Psalm 118 and mixing his metaphors, which confuses us a little bit, I know. He says, the stone, and that's Christ in this metaphor, 
that the builders, that's the religious leaders, they're to be building the building of God, the people of God, you see. The stone that the builders should have built the people of God upon, but instead rejected, has become the cornerstone of the true Israel, of the true building of God, made up of Jew and of Gentile, of living stones. The church, it's you. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and everyone who falls on that stone, as opposed to builds on it, will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Okay, what is Jesus saying? Well, most immediately, he's speaking to the religious leaders of Israel. That's obvious, and he's saying, okay, guys, guess what? You've totally blown it. You have taken the vineyard of God that belongs to God. It's for the produce of fruit for God and you've treated it as if you've owned it, and you've tended to it in such a way, instead of advancing the worship and service of God and the expansion of His kingdom, no, 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 you've tended to it so that it might advance the worship and service of you and the expansion of your kingdom, and you've done that notwithstanding the warning of prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet, and now even the Son of God has come, and you're planning to kill Him. You will crucify him, and you did this because you rightly understood that I'm not just a savior, but in fact, that I am a king. And to receive me is to receive both. And you don't want a king. You value these other things more than me. And so then here is my word to you, Jesus would say again back from Luke 9, whoever would save or preserve his life as he would define a constructed, pursue it, then live it if he himself were king, applies directly to these guys, will lose it in the end when he dies and enters into eternity. He's saying, gentlemen, you religious leaders of Israel, that will be you. You will have no share in my heaven and you will be eternally crushed by the stone that is me. Ba-bum, bum. little bit intense, kind of sobering. But again, it is a judgment parable, so you know, you're not expecting laughter when you hear that. But you get truth. It's a judgment parable. It speaks to them about how it will end for them, but it also speaks to us about the amazing grace of our amazing God and about the amazing glory of our amazing King because, again, God took the great wickedness of these men and brought out of it the greatest goodness that humanity will ever know. He took their rejection and crucifixion of Christ and made it the very basis by which He now freely gives forgiveness and eternal life to all who come and claim that sacrifice, that blood, those sufferings, that death, burial, and resurrection as the only basis upon which, well, they lay claim to the Lord, to His heaven, to forgiveness, to eternal life, the full payment for the penalty of their sins. And so then, I mean, in short, you know, if that's not you this morning, then that's what this story would call you to do. It calls you to action. It calls you to consider Christ, who is not loss for you in any sense, but is gain, and to find in Him a Savior who will forgive all of your sins, past, present, and future, and no one else can do that, and who then will come to you with His wisdom from another world and by His Spirit through that Word 
with community with his people, teach you how to die more and more to you and to your plans and dreams and ambitions that you'll look at someday down the road and go, wow, God had so much more meaningful of a plan for me. He will teach you how to live a life in this life that actually matters. So if you haven't done that, then that's what the story would call you to do. But then, of course, if you have done that, then the story, I think, would, in the spirit of, hey, learn to live for your king, ask you some questions. Survey yourself. I think it would ask you, first of all, am I right now really living like a part of the vineyard of God, or am I instead living like someone who actually owns himself? Because if you're part of the vineyard of God, you don't own yourself, and you have a purpose. You have a mission. It's produced fruit. And then secondly, how am I doing as one of God's tenants? Because we don't just find our place in the story as a part of the vineyard, but also as one of the tenants. We have a sacred duty, an awesome responsibility of cultivating fruitfulness, first of all, in our own lives, and then emanating out into our families and schools and offices and into our community and city and world. Bottom line, are you living to advance the worship and service of God and the expansion of His kingdom, or are you living to advance the worship and service, in some sense, perhaps, of yourself, kind of? Sort of putting yourself at the midst of your existence and trying, consciously or subconsciously, to get everybody really and truly to kind of serve you. And what consumes you is the expansion of your own, because the goal of both the vineyard and the tenant is the maximum production of fruit for God. And here's the deal. For both the vineyard and the tenant, that's not loss. It's ultimate and amazing and incredible gain. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the privilege of being a part of your vineyard through faith in your Son. God, we thank you that you work ironically, that you work mysteriously, that you work in upside-down kinds of ways, that you're a God who takes wicked things and brings amazing things out of them. You've done that here with your gospel, and you do that in our lives too. Father, I pray that we would seriously consider your offer of salvation, but not just of salvation, but of meaning, of purpose, of mission in life the offer of a Savior King who is not divisible but one, and both of which we need, both of which are gain. Impress these things upon our hearts, Lord. Bring them forth by Your Spirit out of our lives. Make us productive parts of Your vineyard and speak to us about how to cultivate exactly that in our lives, in our marriages, in our families in the schools that we attend, in the offices that we work in, and the friend groups that we're part of. Lord, in this city and in this world, that is gain indeed, and not just for you, but for each one of us. Do this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.